Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of the Diecast Movie Review Podcast. This is Steve Turk, and um, an unusual episode today that Ben and Mikhail are not able to record because of school and work, but we wanted to make sure we got another episode out to you, and I'm joined by a good friend of mine, Richard Chamberlain. How you doing, Rich? I am doing great. Thank you for having me on the show. It's an honor. Oh, the honor's all mine, because you've been doing a podcast of your own. Um, with Jeff Owens for quite a while now, and I didn't know if you wanted to talk about it a little bit before I played the promo for it. Yeah, you know, actually, you and I are recording this in January, and, and we're celebrating our third anniversary uh, in in this January of 2020. We started doing that back in 2017, so um, we're not at a big milestone number yet. You know, we do one episode a month, but yeah, for years we've been doing it, so uh, essentially we're gonna keep on keeping on uh, jeff recently relocated up north to minnesota so we're not in we're not the, the kansas city gruesome twosome anymore but uh, we're gonna still uh record kind of face to face we're not gonna do the skype or over the phone thing uh, jeff is gonna continue to come down here and i'm gonna go up there and we're gonna record episodes a little, you know, maybe early, like I was actually recording in a couple of days, about 30 days in advance, but we're going to continue to crank out one episode a month, keep doing the themes. Um, you know, we're doing uh, Coal Shack, The Night Stalker is our February theme, um, and uh, our January theme was the Count Gorgon movie, which fact, I recorded like a month and a half ago, so that's going to be probably the hardest part is to remember what we did when, but uh, yeah, we're you know we've got some uh, interesting things planned out for for this year, and uh, uh, Jeff and I are you know just kind of doing what we're doing. We enjoy it, uh, and uh, we're you know continuing to to grow the, the listenership, and uh, yeah, yeah, that's kind of what we're doing. Just you know, and I've, when I'm not doing that, I'm doing a few other podcasts. I, I'll give a quick plug for Greg Media podcast, uh, Desmond Reddick has had me on that show for, gosh, going on almost five years now. Um, and I record that, really, I do what I want to do when I want to do it. Um, I do mostly contemporary reviews. Um, I don't really go any farther back than maybe like the, the 70s or 80s. And uh, I also do the Kansas City Crips feature on the uh, monthly Memiverse audio cast, uh, which is Christopher Mim. Uh, and that's I kind of just do what I want to do. He lets me have kind of carte blanche to talk about whatever. And uh, I'm not on the January episode, but I'll be back in the February one uh, just talking about the movies we all love to watch. Awesome. And for those that are more curious about the Horrors Club podcast, here's a little promo for it. Welcome to this month's meeting of the Classic Horrors Club. I'm Rich Chamberlain from MonsterMovieKid.wordpress.com and KCCinephile.com. And I'm Jeff Owens from ClassicHorrors.club. Let's begin with a report from our Sergeant-at-Arms. Vince, are there any housekeeping details today? Once the door is locked, there's no way out. The windows have bars that a jail would be proud of. And the only door to the outside locks like a vault. There's no electricity, no phone, no one within miles. So, no way to call for help. Uh, thank you for that very thorough report. As you all know, oh, yes, we have a comment. 
It's time we started. We had better get on with it. Well, we're trying. As you all know, we're recording a new bumper for the podcast. So what testimonials can you give potential listeners? Yes, Al? I hope that as you listen to this, you are among your loved ones. Hmm, interesting feedback, I guess. Vince, what do you think he means by that? So many unexplainable things have happened here. You're not really selling it, guys. Chris, how do you think fans of classic horror, from Silent Screen to Halloween and everything scary in between, will feel after listening to the Classic Horrors Club podcast? In the first moments, every muscle, every fiber will be afire with torment and agony. Doesn't anyone have something good to say about the Classic Horrors Club podcast? Yes, Bela. Well, this isn't a very pleasant way to entertain a guest. <laughs> At least someone's having fun. Let's adjourn on a high note. Al, would you like to sign us out? This concludes our danse macabre. Eloquent as usual. Thank you. Please join us for the next monthly episode of the Classic Horrors Club podcast, available where all fine podcasts are found. So that gives the listeners a pretty good idea what these gentlemen have been doing. And just to let you know, I'll be recording another episode with Jeff Owens down the road for a movie review. But I won't tell you what movie that'll be. We'll keep that one a surprise. But um, to Rich. I do know that it, it is definitely a little different than the one you and I watched for this episode. <laughs> That is true, and I can tell I can tell listeners that I've I've never seen this movie, which we're about to name in just a second, ever until you picked it, and nor have I seen Jeff Owens' movie, and I probably never thought in my life I'd ever watch that movie. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I would agree uh, on that one. But that, I think that's the the cool thing about your show is that you're not just stuck in one genre. You're covering a wide variety of things, and you're you're kind of stirring up the format every week. I mean. You're, you're doing the show, you know, where you're you're rolling the die and, and picking a random movie, and then the next week you've got an interview. Um, I think that there's so many podcasts out there, and that's what, you know, in this day and age, you're starting up a new podcast, you have to do something that is going to make you stand out amongst the pack, and I think uh, that's one of the things I love about your show is that you're, you're doing something a little different um, because, honestly, I know the movie that Jeff picked, I don't think any of the other podcasts I listen to would even go close to that movie. And honestly, the one you and I are talking about today, I've never heard it talked about on any other podcast. And I've been listening to podcasts for, you know, since the dawn of podcasts, honestly, what, 2006. And while I've heard the movie mentioned, maybe in passing, I've never heard anyone talk about it, which is kind of the reason why I picked it when I, I found out what my, my genre was. Um, it was one of the ones that came to my mind right away. I kind of hem hot a little bit and, and thought, well, maybe we should do this or that. And I was like, no, let's, let's do this one. And for those wondering, um, I talked to Rich ahead of time, had him roll an eight-sided die. I think he did it on like a phone um, die emulator, and he rolled number seven. Now, normally for Ben, Mikhail, and I, number seven, when we're rolling, is the wild card. You get to pick anything. But I didn't want to make it easy for guest host to come in because then suddenly like all oh, that they got everything to pick from so when we have a guest host in 
number seven becomes foreign slash documentary. So it could be a foreign film or a documentary film. And Rich rolled number seven, and you picked what, Rich? The Seventh Seal from 1957, directed by Ingmar Bergman. Yes, The Seventh Seal. And I was talking to Rich earlier about this. All I ever knew about The Seventh Seal was that it was directed by Ingmar Bergman, and it had a, a scene with Death playing chess with a knight. That was it. That's all I knew about this movie. And then it was not in English. Well, this is the first time viewing for me. I had seen probably 50% of the film um, in bits and pieces over the years. And I picked up a copy of this on Criterion Blu-ray, I think two years ago, during one of their 50% off sales. You know, you, you, you can't let a sale go by without at least buying one movie. You know, you had too, too good of a deal. And so I picked it up, but I, I hadn't sat down and watched it yet. And so this was a perfect opportunity for me to watch something that's been on my to watch uh, stack for a while. And, you know, I think that this movie kind of covers a lot of different um, genres because it, it does kind of get talked about in the horror film category a little bit because you're dealing with death. Um but it's not really a straight-up horror film. And there's a lot of other aspects to this movie that certainly are not, well, maybe horrific in nature, are definitely not a horror tone. Um, Ingmar Bergman films are very unique and admittedly might not be as accessible um, for a lot of people because you're kind of going into a very unique style of film, um, and I think we'll probably talk about that, but it's, it's, this is a, a film that, um, because it's, you know, it's also foreign language, and I, th I think there's probably different versions out there, but, you know, you want to watch the original language with subtitles, that's always my preference, because that's the best way to get the, in my opinion, to get the emotion and the various inflections coming from the actors as they're acting. Essentially, you're not getting someone in the studio just reading a script. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it clearly doesn't. Um, we were talking Godzilla movies before we started recording, and I think that's any of the, you know, Toho or, or Kaiju films. Sometimes the dubbing works, and other times it, it, it's become a parody over the years. And uh, I think anytime you can watch an original language film with subtitles, that's always my preference, and I think uh, with this film, you know, probably the biggest drawback is sometimes you're paying attention to the subtitles, and you're missing some of the imagery on the screen, so you've got to learn how to balance the reading and then capturing what's on the screen, and, and that may require a second viewing if there's a lot going on the screen visually that you might miss when you're reading the subtitles. That's probably the only draw, I think, anyway, for, for subtitles, is sometimes it draws you away from maybe something on the screen that you should be paying attention to or you should be enjoying. Because certainly with The Seventh Seal, as I believe with, with uh, most Ingmar Bergman films, is that the cinematography is, is a major aspect to the presentation. Oh, oh, agreed. It's like I said, the first one I've ever seen. And it was definitely visually, I don't want to say the word appealing because of the topics that it goes through, but... Um, visually stunning, the different ways they did things and set up the shots. 
and certain shots that just will always, I think, linger in your mind or in, into your subconscious after watching this film. Yeah, this came about halfway through his career. Um, he had been, he did 45 films between 1944 and 2003, and this is his 23rd film. But admittedly, yeah, I think when people talk about Ingmar Bergman, there's only, there's always a handful of films, right, that immediately get mentioned. You know, it's like, okay, well, I want to, I want to check out Ingmar Bergman. So you always hear of, of The Seventh Seal. Uh, or you hear about uh, like Fanny and Alexander or Wild Strawberries, which was the very next film that Ingmar Bergman did. Um, and sometimes a film called The Magician, which came a year later after The Seventh Seal gets talked about. And that's the only, prior to watching The Seventh Seal, that's the only Bergman film that I actually had seen uh, was The Magician, um, which I believe I, I watched off uh, Turner Classic Movies. Um, and that was an, an amazing film. It was a really good movie. Um, and I think that's why I always, I want to, I want to dive into Bergman more, but I know that his movies have a particular style and it's, it's not just a film you can plug in while you're wanting to, to, you know, whittle away a, a rainy Saturday afternoon. I think you've really got to be in the mood for, the type of film he's going to present because there's a lot going on in his movies, um, not just from the cinematography aspect, but the you know his scripts, generally speaking. Um, and so I guess you get to the latter part of his career. As I understand it, he started becoming a lot more lax in later films and actually was began allowing the actors to almost improvise, which, as I've read, is. is mixed reactions from people. Sometimes people are saying it, it comes across being much more realistic. Others are saying it's a lot more kind of haphazard when you, you're not sticking to a script because then things kind of tend to kind of go all over the place. So I guess it really depends on what you're looking for um, when you sit down and watch this film. So there are definitely movies that I think you've got to be in the right frame of mind to enjoy. Just based on the two that I've seen um, is, is that they're they're not as accessible, like I said, as, as maybe some other films, but once you kind of immerse yourself into that world, you kind of know that you're watching something that, that's definitely maybe a class above some of the others. Um, it's just, you've really got to be in the right frame of mind, I think, when you sit down and watch them. Oh, I agree with you. This is not one you're, you're sticking in there to unwind. Um, <laughs> you, know, if you're, you know, like sometimes people look at movies as a release, a chance to get away from certain things. This movie is contrary to that. It actually helps you, I think it helps you ponder certain thoughts that I think most people, the vast majority of the people in the world, do ponder at some time in their life what takes place after this. Which is, is, oh, yeah, which that's is that's a huge that's theme in, in everybody's life because everybody's going to go through that it's sooner or later. I think maybe I, I shouldn't say everybody, but the vast majority of people. Yeah, there's there's a lot of symbolism in this movie. I mean, you can take the movie and, and the story on face value, but really, it's when you start to peel back the layers and, and realize kind of the message that that Bergman is sharing in the film, which kind of ties, I think, into some of his, his childhood experiences coming from a very religious home, and, and he began having. 
some of those same questions, right? It's like, you know, well, what happens, you know, after we die? What, what, and, and some of the, I think one of the, uh, the key things that uh, is brought up, I think there's a line, I think it's, it's uh, Max von Sydow's character um, of an, an, Antonius Block. Um, I wrote the quote down here and I'll just say it. Faith is a torment. Do you know that? It is like loving someone who is out there in the darkness but never appears no matter how loudly you call. That's pretty deep, <laughs> you know, but I think that that anyone who has, you know, any measure of faith or, you know, questions faith, I think that's, that's, a, that's a very logical question. It's like, you know, what's out there? You know, and, and that's, that's the whole gist of faith, right? You have faith in something that you don't necessarily see it. It's not real. It's not tangible. But you have faith that it's there. And that's, and, you know, for me, I, this works. Faith is a torment. I, I totally understand that from a personal level. Um, you know, you, you go through life experiences and, and, you know, you kind of want those tangible, you know, you can feel it, you can taste it, answers, and you don't get that a lot of times in life. And so that's a lot of what's happening in this film is that there's just a lot of questions uh, that Antonius Block has. You know, he, he's dealing with, with the struggle of faith from the from the onslaught of the film, and I think it's important to know that you know, his character, essentially him and his his, um, his squire, you know, they're coming back from the Crusades, which, you know, if anyone knows any, any bit of history, the Crusades was a very uh, dark period of time in, in the history of faith, I and mean, essentially it was a holy war. And but there was a lot of, of uh, a lot of loss of life, and as with any anyone who's in a war who witnesses that that constant barrage of, of death or loss of life, you're going to have questions when you come out of it, right? You're going to have questions of what happens, you know, after we die, and you're going to have the, that struggle with your faith because you're going to wonder why was this allowed to happen? Why am I not, you know? Why are we not seeing God, you know, intervene in, in these life experiences? And that's that's a lot of what, what you deal with in this movie is that Block is from the from the onslaught, he's coming back from the crusades and he's having these questions of faith and, and the struggle that he's dealing with and then then of course we get introduced to the death and the the chess match you know, which is an iconic image that, that everyone sees when they think of the seventh seal. And that game of chess takes place, you know, over the course of the film. Is it a real game of chess? And I think that's where we get into the symbolism or not. Is, is you know, are you really sitting down playing a game of chess or is it more of a symbolic uh, game of chess? And I think that's, that's where this, this film is, is kind of deeper and you have to kind of look past the multiple layers but you can still enjoy it on its face value, but there's a lot more going on behind the scenes. Oh, exactly. And I know when they went to the Holy Wars, it was, it was stated in the plot, they were there for like 10 years. So you can imagine you're coming back from 10 years and you come back and find out it was, in, in their opinion, both the squire and the knight, it was all for nothing. <laughs> 
they just went out there. They were told this is the, you know, the war for Christianity. You got to go do your thing. Rah, 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 sisumba. And they go out and then they find out that, no, it's, it wasn't about that at all. And that they, and and they've used 10 years of their life fighting in this. And it's not like they're getting furloughs, right? They're not getting furloughs to come home. I mean, they're gone. Exactly. You know, they're, they're, they're out. Yeah. They're out in the trenches, you know, and, and, I mean, that's, that's more blocking. I was left his wife behind, you know, and, and questioning, I think at one point, whether, you know, she would even still be there, you know, after, after 10 years. I think that's some of the, you know, I think that was, I think that was touched on. He was like, you know, a lot of times, yeah, it's like, as with any war, you know, even the modern warfare, you're gone for a period of time and some marriages don't survive. To imagine being gone for 10 years, I mean, that's just mind boggling. And, what you're going through in that 10 year period of time. And then, yeah, to come home and find out really it wasn't you, what you were fighting for really wasn't what you thought that was you were fighting for. And ultimately, you know, what, what was gained by that decade of your life? You know, and that's, yeah, that, that would, and that would cause a lot of people to question uh, a lot of things, including your faith. Exactly, and you come back, and the first person, you, well, I shouldn't say first person, but you basically meet death. I've come for you. I've always been walking by your side. And, and, and I love Max Van, Van Sydow's performance so much because every time you ever hear, hear about Max Van Sydow, you always hear the seventh seal. You must see the seventh seal. And I'm so, I'm so glad I finally saw it because his performance is just exceptional. The way he looks, the way he does the words, the way you, the torment that he goes through the course of the movie. It's just, it's just amazing how he does it. Oh, and, yeah. and then he challenges death to the game of chess because he wants through death to find out that God exists, which is basically, basically his, his main question. And which he never finds, yes, we're, we're probably going to spoil some stuff, but this movie has been out as, Rich already said since 1957, and I think even spoiling it, it's not going to change anything about not watching this movie because it's it's pretty much you know where it's going early on. <laughs> you do. I mean, I mean, I think very early on he, he wants to. He also kind of establishes that he wants to do something meaningful, right? After spending ten years in the Crusades to find out that really what did he accomplish in that ten years? He wants to accomplish something before you know, he dies. And that that really plays into this, this game of chess. He's delaying you know, the inevitable. But, uh, you know, he he's wanting to accomplish something in that in that time frame. And that's where we start getting all the players on, on, on the, uh, the chessboard, so to speak, right? You start getting into some of the, the supporting characters. And one of the key characters that we get to meet is the, uh, the troop of actors. Yes. Um, one character, I think his name is Joff, and his wife, and then their their uh, son, uh, their infant son, and then the other uh, actor in the troupe who is a little less desirable. Uh, he's he's basically, you know, in it for the fun, and ends up, you know, at one point running off with a with a, a gal from a, a village that they're performing in, which ends up causing problems with some of the other characters over the course of the film. 
as he's got an angry husband that's out there looking for his wife. And uh, but you know you're you're getting a mix of characters because um, the one thing that I, I you know we, we get early on is that Joth is talking about these visions that he's having. Yes, uh, I think he has a vision of the of the, uh, the Virgin Mary. I, I I didn't quite understand the the purpose behind the vision aspect. Did did you have any thoughts on that? Because I I had I kind of struggled exactly where we were going with that, and I never did. I think completely. I think the reason he had the vision they showed it early is because of the vision at the end of the movie. They wanted to already put out there that he can see things that other people can't see. So at the end of the movie, he's the only one that is able to describe what happened to the knight, the squire, and and, and the blacksmith, and so on at the end, because he's seeing it when they're doing their their, um, dance macabre, so to speak. They're depicting of that, and he's able to describe it to his wife, who can't see it at all. So I think it's like Chekhov's gun. He has this ability to see things that are on a different plane or realm or spiritual or whatever, um, where you want to look at it, um, and, and, and nobody else can see it, and she just thinks it's him making up funny stories. So in a sense, he's gifted with this talent that his wife just thinks it's him just making stuff up, but we, the audience, know, oh, no, he actually is seeing something. <laughs> Okay, I, I could see that. That that's probably ultimately, yeah, why we why that happens, right? I guess is that they've got to establish that in the uh, got to establish his abilities to see that. That that plays a part. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Otherwise, uh, I mean, it's hard to tell because it's um, when you don't have that established ahead of time, if he was just suddenly able to see it and they weren't, and people would be like, eh, what's going on here? Or if she, if everybody was able to see it, I think it would have less dramatic value because by him only being able to see it, it proves that they actually are being led off to their final destination. Okay. Yeah, I can see. I, uh, that's, yeah, I mean, that really, I think it's, it's got to be the, the main gist of that, you know, that there's that ultimate payoff at the end of the film. Now, I will say this. When watching the movie, I thought it was going to be almost all about the knight, Antonius Block. I was surprised how much time John's, the squire, gets. And that the actor does a brilliant job. Gunner, I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce the last name. Bornstrand? Yeah, I don't have his name written down. It was I, I was like, when I was doing the research, I was like, oh my god, you know, I'm going to stick with Max on Pete Allen because the only the only because you're dealing with a lot of uh, of uh, Swedish names that are hard to pronounce. I'm like, I, I have enough time picturing. I think when we did our our Taiju episode for Classic Horror Club, I'm, I'm sure that there was somebody out there in the audience that was cringing because we were butchering names left and right. So. At least that we try. Right. Yeah, At least we're we'll, trying. We'll, we'll call him Gunner. <laughs> Gunner, or Dork, you call him the Squire. And, um, but his role was so diverse. He's pessimistic, comedic, and he also is noble. 
if that makes any sense to you. Yeah, he, he was he was very hot or cold. I mean, there was just one scene you'd sit there and say, oh, my gosh. You know, he's like, he's so negative. He's not necessarily the best of guys. But then he ends up saving the girl who is who is about to get, get raped. And, you know, he didn't have to. You know, he could have easily just walked away from that scenario, but he ends up, you know, saving her, you know, and then like the next scene, then, you know, basically he's, he's inviting her to come along, but then, you know, almost playing out that, um, you know, if you do, you do, if you don't, you don't, he's trying to kind of play cool with it. Yeah. He's kind of an interesting character. He's kind of all, all across the, the spectrum. It was like, you know, depending on the scene, you kind of like, but as the movie goes on, I, I think you, you get a better gist for what, you know, who he is. And I think it becomes easier to, like his character whereas in the beginning of the film you're kind of you know should i like this guy is he is he likable i don't know you got to get a better feel for who he is and again i think that may be his character he's been tainted right by by 10 years of war and that that negativity that would naturally come from that that situation he's you know he's not as introspective as as uh, block is because block is, is you know thinking about, you know, the larger, you know, you know, is there a God? Where is he? Why is he not here? And and having his own, you know, symbolic chess match with, with death, whereas John's journey is very different. Yes, they're both on kind of the same path, because at the end of the movie they end up essentially at the same place. And I think John's is more accepting of the whole process. It's like he's looking at it I think he looks at it with block is why are you questioning this? Why know that this is just the way it's going to be? You have no control. Control what you can control, but don't think about the stuff you can't control. That's the way I look at his character. And when we, it was when he's introduced early on, they're on the after they leave the beach, and um, they're riding on the horse. They see that person sitting on the side, and the squire gets down to look at him. You can see it's a totally dead body. It's been there a while, and then he hops back on and yeah. he goes. Well, I forgot exactly what it was said, but it's like, what did he have to say? Did he give, give directions? He goes, no, he wasn't that helpful. He never told him the guy was dead. You know, yeah. it was just. That's <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's so many times he's done that. Like, he'll, he'll, say, he'll say parts, but he won't give everything. And it's just, I think it's part of he knows that, that his master tonight has gone through so much. Why tor- torment him more? And the other part is, what's the point? You know, it's like. What did you think about the visual representation of, of death that we get right from the onslaught of the film? That, as we, as any filmmakers ever seen death portrayed in films since this one, this has set the template up. Um, the black wardrobe yes. with the white face, and excellently acted um, in the role. You know, the, it, was, it was it was a great depiction. And I like how Death is trying to trick him and to give trick the knight into giving information, you know. Um, yes, when they're in the the monastery or the church, yeah, he's, he's going to the confessional and basically gives away what his plan is to try to deceive Death, ends up telling Death exactly what he's what he's going to do. I, I love that scene. Yeah, and Death's everywhere. I think all of a sudden you turn around, there he is. There's Death. You know, like yeah, and. and they don't see him, but he's there. And of course, with the black plague going on, he's he's a rather busy man, um, or entity, 
you know, with, uh, I guess it'd be a better way of putting it. And I really enjoyed the portrayal of it. And yes, it has been um, done in that sense. Uh, I don't want to say, <laughs> I was going to say it's been done to death, but uh, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> I, I, I realized where I was going. I was like, oh, I might as well just stick it and own it. But the scene, finally, the original version that led to all these alternative versions, it's just, uh, it, it holds up so well. It doesn't matter if you've seen it been twisted or, 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 or made into a, a, a parody, but to see the original version of Death play through it. And then, from what I've read, when this was done as a radio um, thing, I believe it was done on the radio, Death was silent. There was nobody speaking the words. There was no actor there. It was just silence. And part of me started to wonder, what would it have been like if he would have been talking to nothing? Like, what if it would have been deaf, like maybe like didn't say anything, but just was physically there? Like in the, um, the, the Ghost of Christmas Future, where you don't, they never say anything, but you see the embodiment. And I don't think it would have held up as well. I think we definitely needed the, no. the, the words from deaf. I think silence would not have done, it as, uh, done this movie any justice. No, I think that that your iconic image, right, of, of playing the the death method, I mean, that would be that'd be lost, right? So I think that the visual representation of death was was instrumental in in how the film plays out, you know, because it's even though you 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 get the gist that it's a it's a symbolic, you know, uh, you know, you're not really sitting at a chessboard playing, you know. The, the game of chess with, with death, but it's it's much more kind of in the realm, I guess you could say, is that you know he's he's kind of playing that that uh, symbolic chess match uh, with death. But you need that visual representation of what's going on. I think if you didn't have that, um, some people would probably pick up on what was going on, but a lot of your audience, I think, it, it would be lost on them and. This movie, which is already maybe not as accessible as, as other films, would be, I think, even less accessible if you didn't have that visual representation. I wasn't meaning the visual; I was meaning the audible representation. Oh, okay. With Def, because Def being able to speak, where in the um, the radio drama, Def was silent. So here, I'm saying, like, yeah, well, imagine yeah, I mean, just being visual, but no audio from Def. I, I don't think it, I think we definitely needed both versions: the visual and the audible. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine death being silent then on, on like an, uh, an audio presentation. That would be, that'd be an interesting way of presenting it. I suppose it might work, but I don't think it would work on the same level. Yeah, I don't know. It, it was, you and I never heard the broadcast, and it'd be interesting to, of course, if we did hear it, it would be all in Swedish. <laughs> so I don't know. If uh, I was going to say, I know that it's not an American production, so it'd be a Swedish production, so... And how would you do that with subtitles? Don't know. You know, that's, that's unfortunately that would be something that that would be hard for us to, um, without knowing the language, that'd be something that would be lost on us. But um, I, so, so speaking with 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 death, um, did you are you aware of the connection uh, loosely, but the connection that this has with Roger Corman's The Mask of the Red Death? No, no. Um, please lead on. So, um, when Roger Corman was uh, 
had decided he wanted to make the mask of the Red Death when he was getting into his Poe phase. He wanted to make the movie in 1961, uh, which I believe the movie ultimately was made in 60, was it 63 or 64? Um, he, so he wanted to make it two or three years earlier. Um, and But he wanted to essentially, his, his idea of the images of, uh, you know, the different images of the different deaths, right, was very much going to be patterned after the image of death from the seventh seal. But he was also very conscious of the fact that he didn't want, he didn't want there to be too much of a connection if he wanted the film to stand out on, on its own. And he didn't want, um, he knew that there was going to be obvious comparisons because of the theme of the, of the fact that Master of the Red Death deals with plagues and, again, the images of death. And they do in some ways look rather similar. So that's why he ended up delaying Mask of the Red Death for several years to get farther away from the release of The Seventh Seal. Seventh Seal, when it was released in 57, because, of course, it's a foreign film and you're dealing with subtitles, even or even if you're dealing with dubbing, it, it, you're dealing with the fact that it's not going to be a mainstream film necessarily. So it was being seen... Um, on smaller screens and being seen in what we would call art houses today. I don't think they referred to them as art houses back then. But, you know, a film back then would have, you know, uh, all they would have is the release in a particular year. It could still be playing in theaters for two or three years after. Now, as it was, you know, it would go from this theater to this theater. We had films that would get wide release, but other films, you know, they would tend to have a life of their own for, for a much longer period of time. Whereas now, right, a movie gets released and it makes its money the opening weekend. And after that, you know, films are on home media within typically three months of their theatrical release. Very much different back then. So, um, you know, 1961, there's a good chance that The Seventh Seal was still very much in the, the public mind. And maybe it was even still playing in theaters, um, which is why Roger Corman ended up wanting to delay the release um, so that it would get farther away from The Seventh Seal. Having just seen Master the Red Death, um, and I did a little bit of research at that time, which is why The Seventh Seal was kind of in my mind when he did the roll of the die, and I'm like, okay, because I've been thinking about The Seventh Seal after having seen Master the Red Death. There is definitely some, some strong comparisons to the way Death or, you know, the Red Death is played out in The Master of the Red Death, you know, where he's sitting by the tree and he's talking to, uh, I think it was uh, the, the child or the character of the early part of the film. There's some very strong similarities to the way death is presented in the seventh seal. He's talking to the block of the, the night. And I just, you know, when you watch them side by side, you, you can't help but see that honestly, Roger Corman had, you know, he was inspired. He had to have been inspired by Bergman's presentation of death. And as he said, it's a common presentation now, representation, but back then Roger Corman was probably one of the first film directors to, um, was that inspired enough to, to bring his presentation of death in a film to match and, and kind of honor Bergman? So, interesting little side note. Oh, I, I never knew. I mean, I, mean, I knew <clears throat> that death was similar, but I didn't know 
the time, didn't understand the time frame or why one movie got pushed back, you know, because he didn't want to overlap with the other and make people think he's just aping the one film when he's not. Because I love The Mask of the Red Death. It's one of my um, favorite Vincent Price films. Of the oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's a darker film, but, you know, again, just Price makes anything good, right? I, I think it's, as, as I think you said in, in your interview, uh, thankful that we have so many Vincent Price films to watch and I know a lot of people will always say like they might be saying how come the two of us have never seen The Seventh Seal until recently there's millions and millions of movies out there and there's no way in the world any one person can see them all um, and that's no. you know that's that's the that's well, the fun of like it. The Seventh Seal I mean doesn't get played on television as much I know Turner Classics will occasionally show it um, but not as not as much as they do other films, and mostly because it's you know they'll, they'll it, it gets played because it's a Berkman film, but it doesn't get played as much simply because it is a foreign language film, and and unfortunately a lot of people, especially younger um, you know viewers, won't they don't even want to watch a black and white film, right? Let alone foreign language film, which is incredibly sad because it's limiting their their exposure some absolutely wonderful films. I can't imagine living in a world where I would watch black and white films, but I grew up in that era, as, as you did too. It's like, we, we watched black and white TV shows. I mean, I, <laughs> I, you know, we had our first color television, uh, I think when I was seven, you know, so up until that point, my, my television viewing as a child was in black and white, and I had a personal black and white television until... Uh, 
you daughter, rich go on a tangent? Go a tangent. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, the, um, Jeff, I was probably listening to this right now laughing. He's like, okay, welcome welcome to my world, Steve. Um, <laughs> I mean, with, with, with silent films, right, it's, it's all about presentation. And you've got to have, if you don't have a good soundtrack, right, if you don't have good music, it changes your silent film experience greatly. Um, if you've got a bad soundtrack, it can change everything about what you're watching. I, I talked about my experience where I, I went to a theater in Wichita and watched Nosferatu, and they, their version they showed had a very weird contemporary soundtrack that was so inappropriate for the film. It is, it's the only time um, in a movie theater that I got up and walked out of a movie. Uh, halfway through, I couldn't do it. Um, I, it just, people were laughing during the course of the film. And I'm like, what are you laughing at? This is not a film that you should be laughing at, right? I mean, I get it. It's not as scary as, you know, others, but the music was setting the tone and turning it almost into a comedy. Um, so silent films, you, you you really have to have that good soundtrack to, you know, live music accompaniment or, or whatever you choose to, to, to watch it with can change your, your viewing experience. And so I acknowledge that, that a foreign language film, yeah, you've got to be in the mood for it. And certainly a Bergman film, you've got to be in the mood for it. And because if you're not, it will impact your enjoyment of the film. You know, if, if reading subtitles is, is something that you struggle with, then you're probably not going to get as much out of the film as if, you know, well, if you, if you do enjoy subtitles or if that's not a problem with you. And Bergman, because his films are so unique, you know, because it's a combination of, of cinematography and storytelling that isn't necessarily as straightforward. Um, it, it's full of, of symbolism, and that can be that can throw people off. You know, that can some people are simply gonna just not they're not going to enjoy a film unless it's very much, you know, point A, point B, point C, and, and presented to you in that in that regard. Or you have to be in the mood for it. Like I'm not always. I and Bergman is. You know, I've seen two of the films. I want to see more. But having seen The Seventh Seal now reminds me that. His films have a particular style. Carla, who watched this movie with me, did not care for it because she, well, she acknowledged that it visually was it was an appealing film to watch. You know, she she did not like the overall uh, the overall way he told the story. It just she couldn't connect with it, um, and I don't think she would be. I don't think she she would be up to watch another Bergman film. Um, and I can I totally understand that because it's it's uh, his style is acknowledged by a lot of filmmakers. I think Martin Scorsese said that you know if you grew up in, in this time frame, the 50s or 60s, and you were an aspiring filmmaker, Bergman is one of the directors that you looked at and in which you aspired to be. Uh, there's a lot of filmmakers who look at Bergman films as almost like uh, you know, and I hear Wild Strawberries have talked about a lot as well the film that that filmmakers look at and say gosh you know i want to learn this and this and i want to do this this and this and i think that that says a lot about bergman as a filmmaker but on the flip side 
you know, Bergman's films are not shown as readily on Herbert Classic movies or not, um, you don't see these films pop up on another channel because they're not as accessible because his, his style of telling a film is very, very unique. And, and that perhaps limits his audience a little bit, but on the flip side, art, a lot of art house films are that way. Um, you, you, there's a particular style to the film, and, and it's more than just seeing a story told. There's a lot of different aspects to it, and, and symbolism and, and cinematography play a big part in these types of films. And I'm, I'm going to piggyback with you. I can see where somebody like Carla or the average, we'll use her as like the average audience as, as a spectrum for that. Going in to watch this film, most people don't want um, downer endings, so to speak. They always want everything to be positive and upbringing. Oh. And, and, for, and that's been out throughout film history. You know, most, most, most of your most popular films end up having good endings. But of course, there's also a lot of great films especially in the 70s, that have dark endings or downer endings. And this one, it, it, to me, is a mix of both. It has a positive ending and a negative ending, but it's really not about the ending. It's about the journey. And if, and these are one of those films that I'm going to recommend it to everybody. That, that you see it, you don't have to watch it multiple times. I think one viewing or two, if you, you know, if you want, like you were saying earlier, because you – we're reading the subtitles, the second do, and then you can focus more on the imagery. I think this this is yes. one of those ones that people should seek out and do. And interestingly enough, from what I was reading, as you brought up, it's not shown as much anymore. And a lot of people hear about it, like as I did. Oh, it's the chess scene. Max van Sydow was in the seventh seal, and, and you don't they don't know anything else about it. You don't know anything more to it than that, and. They really should seek it. It's You'll almost like a hidden gem. Right? It's almost a hidden gem. Yeah, you, you've seen the image, and people will, you know, a lot of people would say, well, they would recognize that image, but they probably couldn't tell you what movie it's from. Um, and if they could tell you what movie it's from, then the next question would be, have you seen it? And most people would probably say no, because it's it's just not as, um, it's just a film that doesn't get talked about. You said it's kind of a hidden gem. It's not one that's, it's talked about a lot because it makes you think a little bit, and it touches on some things that are a bit uncomfortable for people. As you're, you know, if you're one that's wanting a that proverbial happy ending, um, you know, this one is, as you said, the mix. It's not super dark at the end, um, but spoiler alert: characters die at the end of the film, but not all of them. You know, there there is a really good um, I, I really like, ultimately, you know, and then and we want, you know, I don't want to go into too much into spoiler territory because I really want people to discover this movie on their own. And if that's one thing that we, that maybe people get out of listening to this episode is maybe to finally track down the seventh seal if they haven't seen it. It's well worth the journey to do that, I think. But I, I love the, the fact that, that, you know, Block, who is trying to do a good deed, finds a way to to accomplish that in a very unique way so that some of the characters of the film, you know, survive, survive death. They, you know, you're dealing with plague, 
attention because death is everywhere. The plague is everywhere, essentially. And some of the characters who possibly would have succumbed to death, a.k.a. the plague, ultimately get to escape and survive into the, that final scene that that's your ray of hope at the end of the movie. It's like, yes, some of the characters die, and that's, that's the darkness that, you know, I think that Carla really didn't care for because she, she, she likes the happy endings in movies. And she can deal with, with the negative stuff as long as there's reason for it. She struggled with, with this one a lot. So basically um, what you're saying is she struggled with it like Block. What? She was like block. She was struggling with it. She, she. It's almost like, what's the point? Yeah. What is? So, so, so her character is the knight. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, she, yeah, she, she has those questions, right? It's like, you know, what's the point? You know, knight. Um, you know, going back a little bit, getting a little less deep. Uh, Max von Sydow, his performance as block. I think he talked about it, just an amazing performance. And clearly, he developed a, a, a good relationship with Bergman because he ended up doing um, 12 films with Bergman. Uh, I had seen The Magician, and he is in that movie. It's been admittedly probably five or six years since I've seen it. I don't remember much about it other than I really enjoyed it. Uh, and it's a movie that I've often thought about getting from Criterion during one of their 50% off sales, so I can revisit it. Um, it's a movie about a, a traveling magician, um, and there's like supernatural elements to the shows, and, and they they're questioned by some townspeople. They they think that you know what he's doing is is kind of some deception going on, and there's this whole lot of subplots and things. It's, it's, a, it's a different film. Um, I want to revisit it because I'm wondering if there's some symbolism that I missed the first go-around, knowing now that that's what Bergman does in a lot of his movies. I know more about Bergman as a director now than I did when I watched The Magician, so I'm thinking maybe there's some stuff that I missed, but I do remember uh, Max von Sydow's performance in that was, was really, really good. Um, and it, it does make me want to kind of seek out some of the other films he did with, with Bergman. He's an amazing actor, still alive. He's still with us at the age of 90. And, and his, you look at his filmography, and, and he's done such a wide spectrum of films and characters. I mean, he played Jesus in The Greatest Story Ever Told, you know, and then a decade later he was playing Father Marin in The Exorcist. And those films are about as polar opposite as you can possibly get, you know. And then he goes with uh, some some more cheesy characters in the '80s. He played Ming the Merciless in Flash Gordon. He played uh, King what was it Osric, I think, in in Conan the Barbarian. He was in Dune. He played uh, Blofeld in uh, the uh, Sean Connery 007 flick Never Say Never Again. Um, and then just a few years ago. He did a Star Wars appearance. He played the character of uh, Lord Santeca in The Force Awakens. He was at the very beginning of the film. And, and also, he was also in Game of Thrones. Yeah, I was about to say, he was the raven, the fir- the raven in the Game of Thrones. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, so he's oh, very, but then you know, he's had so many other dramatic roles 
you know, those are just kind of the genre films that I was rattling off that people have probably seen him as. But then you look at his filmography, I mean, he's done more than 100 films. He's, he's a, a very accomplished actor. Um, but clearly there was some type of a synergy there between him and Bergman to, to do 12 films together um, in the early part of his career. And you, and you see that, I think, in this movie is that he's just uh, very very dynamic when he's on screen playing the character of block and then especially when he's at the chessboard with death there's just such a there's a chemistry that that he has with death that that comes across on the screen that i think is is one of the best aspects of the movie yeah the chemistry he has with death and his squire is just is just great and yes and i, I think for myself if i was to like look at these characters and wonder who i who would i be more like I picture myself more as the squire. You know, you're making fun of different things, but you know he's firm in his beliefs that things are going to go this path. Understands what other people doubt and are confused. He's like, okay, I understand. You're you're trying to figure your thing out, but I know what's going on and and, and accepts it. And, And I think, you know, I think that the ones that are, portrayed, I'm probably more like him. I would probably say the same thing. Um, thinking, I, I wanted to do the comic relief right and say, no, I was the uh, the actor who <laughs> <laughs> ran off with uh, the maiden in the village. Uh, no. Uh, it ended up not working out well I, for him in the end. <laughs> it, did not, it did not work out well for him at all. I mean, you got to think that one through. No, I, I agree with you. I think the, the Squire is a much more relatable character, ultimately, I think, for, for a lot of people. Although I think there are probably people who do relate to Block. But, um, yeah, the Squire, at least, there, there was a measure of, of optimism there. You didn't see it at first, right? Um, like I said, you kind of struggled at first, I think, trying to figure out, well, am I supposed to like this guy? Do, am I supposed to hate him? And then you definitely... Um, I think one of the, my... my my you know most favorite scenes of him is when he's um, he's he meets the uh, the painter yes. um, and, and uh, the the interaction that he has with with the painter I think is just it's just very entertaining I don't know and I think after Block comes in and basically tells him it's time to go there's something he says I can't remember what it was. Just the the mannerisms on his face when he's kind of looking, you know, at, at the uh, the artist there. I just uh, I love that scene, and I think that for me was a turning point where I'm like, I started to see the humanity of his character a little bit more, and I started paying attention more to his interactions with with characters. And he was, uh, yeah, there, there there was in the midst of all the the negativity and, and, and bad experiences that he had, there was still that measure of, of optimism, I think, present uh, that made him perhaps more relatable. I agree with you, and I think my favorite scene with him, one of my or one of my favorite scenes with him, is when he goes into the tavern, or is in the tavern area, and I think there's a the, the fight going on, and it's the, the there's, there's women involved, and, and he's just giving commentary in the background. Well, of course, she's going to say this now, you know, and and then they do it. It's, like, yeah. it's almost like he just knows what everything's going to happen before it happened. And it's just, it, it, it's kind of funny because you're getting color commentary from him about what you're seeing. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was, that was a good scene too. 
together. There was, uh, I mean, that, that's one thing that there's a lot of really um, almost like little vignettes in, in the course of the film, right? As they're traveling on their journey and they're meeting these characters and, and having this little episode or that little episode. And it's such some really just very simple moments on screen that are, that are very powerful. Um, well, the scene where uh, Block is sitting there with um, with the squire and then the girl that they that they saved and then the uh, Joss and, and his wife and infant son and they're just they're sharing a simple meal right I think they're having strawberries and cream yes. and and it's such a well done scene um, and you, you know I think some of the, I think it's in that scene actually where I think there's that's where that's where your Joss, quote comes you know, from talking. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I think that's, I don't know, that, that scene is just incredibly powerful, um, incredibly well done, um, because it's showing, you're just seeing aspects of the characters sharing a meal, you know, a, a very simple, simple moment, yet there's a lot that, that comes across in that scene. That, the moments like that is where you have, is where you see that Bergman has had a, a particular style of filmmaking that, um, I could see would resonate for to aspiring filmmakers, right? They see a, a scene like that, and you're you're wanting to make film, and you're sitting, I want to do that, you know. That's that's where I could see a director like a Scorsese or you know I, any other directors from that time period. There's a lot of them who have said that Bergman was was an inspiration for them. Scenes like that that would stand out. That's that's the simple moments of of you know, you can direct a, a big, you know, action sequence or whatever, but to direct a simple scene like that and yet make it compelling and to reveal aspects about the characters, that requires good writing and good directing to to make that come across in a way that's memorable for the viewer. So, Rich, to wrap up our talk about The Seventh Seal, do you recommend this film to other people? I would recommend it with a disclaimer. I think that, um, you know, I've got the Criterion Blu-ray, and it's a, and a I mean, you know, I was actually a little surprised there wasn't more extras on this one. I, I was kind of looking for a little bit more, but there is a good, uh, some good documentaries and some good uh, extras on it. Um, visually, it's a fantastic presentation, as you would expect from Criterion. Um, if you can find this movie, uh, absolutely, um, you need to to make sure you're in the right frame of mind for it. It's a movie that you need to sit down and watch uh, without any distractions and probably plan a second viewing. As we talked about, um, there's a lot going on the screen and since you're paying attention to the subtitles, I think when you watch it a second time, there's, there's probably going to be certain aspects to the character's um, presentations and things happening on the screen and just the overall cinematography that you're going to want to enjoy without having to pay as much attention to what's happening with the subtitles. So I would recommend it uh, with those disclaimers. What about you? I recommend it, and I was able to get it through um, Netflix, the DVD. Um, yes, Netflix still does, um, <coughs> excuse me, still does DVDs, people. And I was able to get the Criterion version through to Netflix. So, um, and so it's, it is readily available for those that do the Netflix DVD thing. I, otherwise, I'm not sure how available it is, except for Criterion, as Rich already mentioned. Uh, 
I put this as one of those films, like I, I kind of mentioned earlier, that I think everybody should see at least once. And because of the, the things that it brings up about existence, about God, about death, about the purpose of life, and the purpose of everything, and I think it holds up today just as it did in 1957 because people are still pondering those questions, still wondering what is it all there for and, and why do we do this and why do we, why does this, why does God allow this to happen? I think, or whatever entity you believe in, um, and I think those truths are still there. Those doubts are still there. And you can be, somebody that's highly faithful and then something can happen and then suddenly you're questioning those doubts as which happened with Block because I'm, I'm assuming, you know, the past, the backstory that he was extremely faithful, goes to the Holy War, finds out this world is a lot different than I thought it was and, and then comes back questioning his with those questions and I think, I think that holds true today, as you, you and I mentioned earlier. It's, um, I, th I think this film is definitely one for people to seek out and see. And as Rich already said, you know, you, you want to, it's not something you want to put in late at night to unwind. You want to you give it your full attention, as you would with any movie that you have to read subtitles with. So I, 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 I highly recommend that everybody seek it out and watch it. I would agree that it's, it's very relevant to to today's mentality. I think a lot of people are having um, the same questions. Uh, they've always had them, right? But at a certain time period in history, you, you tend to, to ask the same questions maybe a little bit more. So I think that so this is a film that will resonate, I think, with a lot of modern audiences. And, and I hope that a lot of people who may be hindered by, uh, not necessarily hindered, but may be uh, put off uh, by uh, an older film or especially a foreign film, um, give this film a chance, you know. Uh, block off a couple of hours and just immerse yourself into uh, to what really is a classic film and, and just some amazing um, uh, cinematography and some just uh, amazing visual presentation that, that Bergman does. And I think you may very well be like me. It's like, yeah, I want to see some more Bergman films. I admittedly... I'm going to have to be in the right frame of mind. I would like to see Wild Strawberries because I keep hearing about that film. I want to see that movie. Um, so I can kind of put on that bucket list, right? You know, it's one of those films that you want to see. You just have to wait for the right moment for it to pop up. And so maybe maybe Turner Classic will do a, a Bergman Day. Uh, they, they tend to do that periodically uh, to give you an opportunity to see that movie. But, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed finally getting a chance to sit down and, and watch this. I'm, I'm glad uh, I rolled the die accordingly and, and, and glad that I chose this one. I think it was a lot of fun. Well, I'm glad you chose it too, Rich. And um, thank you for joining us on the Diecast Movie Review Podcast. And uh, if, you if you hold on for a second, I'm going to be playing the trailer I, for people. If you're curious to listen to it, it is all in Swedish and stuff like that. But. It, it, the music to it is very good. We didn't talk about that. We, we know another podcaster friend of ours that always talks about the film scores. So <laughs> I guess you and I yeah. are not that one. But we'll let um, we'll let that play out to end, to end our little episode.
gissar du aldrig ett fråga? Nej. Jag slutar aldrig. Och till sitter herren, han är ganska fjärran. Men din broder Satan, möter du på gatan. Vad har du gjort av min fru? Sommaren är förstås bättre än vintern, för på sommaren slipper man frysa. Men våren är det allra bästa. Akta dig att du inte lägger dig på käften, så att du inte ens kan göra dina konster för turkarkanivalen. Pesten, den svarta döden, hemsökte Europa vid mitten av 1300-talet. Den härjar också i Sverige när riddaren Antonius Block är på hemväg från ett korståg. En gång drog han ut till det heliga landet som en trosvis ung krigare. Nu återvänder han, plågad av tvivel och ovisshet. Skulle det inte finnas någon gud, den tanken är honom outhärdlig. När döden plötsligt står framför honom vill han ha uppskov och lockar döden till ett parti schack. För innan han dör vill han ha gjort en enda meningsfull handling. Det får han tillfälle till när slumpen för i hans väg en liten gycklarfamilj som mitt i en värld av lidande och ondska bevarat sin ljusa förtröstan, sin glädje över att leva. Och när schackpartiet lider mot sitt slut slår han omkull pjäserna för att vinna tid. Och för att den lilla familjen ska hinna rädda sig undan döden. Okay. And um, thanks again for everybody for listening in. And um, hope you come back for the next episode, which will be decided by the roll of a die. Talk to you guys later, and th thanks again, Rich. Thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure the episode I do with Jeff is going to be just as uh, intellectually stimulating. <laughs> it's uh, it's going to be on a very different plane. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bye, everybody. <laughs>